Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. And you may be seated. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Daniel chapter 4. A couple more uh, Sundays, want to be in Daniel, a couple of more Sundays before we move on. This morning we'll be in Daniel chapter 4, and because of the length of the passage, we'll just read it as we go. Daniel chapter 4 records for us a great turn that took place in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel chapter 4. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis called it the great sin. He said, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in others, and of which hardly any people except some Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. There is no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves, and the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice Lewis was speaking of is the sin of pride. And C.S. Lewis called it The great sin, because of the enmity it created not only between man and man, but between man and God. And pride is perhaps the most destructive attitude of all. As one commentator said, it has damned not only Satan and his angels, but also men and women throughout history. Pride is worthy of condemnation because it violates the first commandment, having no other gods before God himself. God alone is to be worshipped and served because his will is supreme. But pride asserts that man should take supremacy over God. God proclaimed through Isaiah, my glory I will not give to another. You see, God will not tolerate a usurper who attempts to rise above him. Of course, the book of Proverbs tells us how God feels about the sin of pride. Proverbs 21.4, haughty eyes and a proud heart. Uh, our sin. Uh, Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is arrogant or proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. And it says, be assured he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16.18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 29.23, one's pride will bring him low. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. I mean, pride is a serious sin that is condemned over and over and over again throughout Scripture. It's an abomination because it dishonors the name of God. It also brings about destruction because the end end of pride is judgment. And James, in James 4.6, summarizes God's response to pride. James writes, God opposes the proud. That's active resistance. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Daniel chapter 4 is a graphic illustration 
of that truth. It shows the importance of properly recognizing the sovereignty and supremacy of God and and the humble state of man. King Nebuchadnezzar of, of Babylon ruled over a great world empire. He was a man whose life was filled with power, success, and and prosperity, and consequently his heart became filled with pride so that he had no room for the true and the living God. In fact, his pride was so great that he basically set himself up as God. You know the story. He had a 90-foot image of himself built of gold and, and forced the people in his kingdom to bow down and worship. And when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to do so, they were thrown into a fiery furnace. Such was the strength of Nebuchadnezzar's ego. But in Daniel 4, God who opposes proud brings Nebuchadnezzar down. God humbles him greatly. But in the end, God gives him grace after Nebuchadnezzar came to the place of humbling himself. And the lesson Nebuchadnezzar learned is in the last sentence of his testimony in verse 37. And we read there, And those who walk in pride, he, God, Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. The Lord actually uh, began his work on Nebuchadnezzar by bringing Daniel and his three friends into the king's life. In Daniel chapter 1, the faithfulness of Daniel and his friends to God and his word is seen when they defied the king by not eating the royal food and drink. The king seemed ignorant of Daniel's God, but he recognized the unique integrity, understanding, and superior wisdom of Daniel and his three friends, and as a result, he appointed them to positions among his wise men. In Daniel chapter 2, after God established their credibility before the king, he enabled Daniel to interpret an incredible dream that no one else in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom knew about or could interpret. Through this, Nebuchadnezzar learned Daniel's God is, an, is all wise and, and is able to reveal the future to men. And so he was led to a deeper understanding of who God is. In chapter 3, when Daniel's three friends refused to obey the decree to worship Nebuchadnezzar's image, they were thrown into the fiery furnace, but you know the story, God miraculously protected them. And so once again, Nebuchadnezzar saw God at work. And in this, he learned that Israel's God was not only all-wise, but all-powerful. Daniel's God was able to deliver those who trusted in him, even from a powerful king. And now in chapter 4, we see what is perhaps Nebuchadnezzar's conversion to faith in the true God. Chapter 4 relates how God broke the king's pride and turned his heart toward him in faith. And God did so in part through a dream. Look at verses 1 to 3. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. What we have in chapter 4 is the personal testimony of King Nebuchadnezzar in his own words. Now, this does not mean by any stretch of the imagination that Nebuchadnezzar was an inspired author of Scripture, not at all. It simply means that God made sure that what Nebuchadnezzar said was accurately recorded by Daniel. 
You see, the Bible maintains its accuracy by faithfully recording events and conversations. And so, for example, when the devil is quoted in the Bible, he is quoted accurately, although what he said may have been false. When Nebuchadnezzar gave this testimony, Daniel accurately recorded it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so this is the personal testimony of King Nebuchadnezzar of how he came to believe in the Most High God, the one true God whom he came to recognize as being above all the false gods of his people. And in the verses that follows, Nebuchadnezzar describes the events which brought about this dramatic change in his life. In verses 4 to 12, Nebuchadnezzar begins by telling about the dream he had. Look at verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. And so the king was at ease. It means that he was at peace, secure, contented. He was free from apprehension and fear. We also are told in the verse that he was prospering. The word literally means his life was growing green, which is quite appropriate for this chapter. So the king was enjoying a time of peace and and security, a time of prosperity. After defeating all of his enemies and completing several impressive building projects, he was able to to at last rest contented, just enjoying the the ease and, and the luxury of his earthly kingdom. He was like a 21st century American who just checked with his stockbroker and discovered that that he's prospering and he has good reason to be contented. But God interrupted the king's rest. God shook him from his false security and and gave him a dream. Notice, if you will, verse 5. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies, it means the mental images in a dreamlike state. So as I lay in bed, the fancies, the mental images, and the visions of my head alarmed me. And so once again, God in his grace revealed future events to the king in a dream, and and what he saw was alarming. It, It frightened or it terrified him. And in fear, he summoned help. We read in verses 6 and 7. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. And so the king called for all of the wise men. He told them the dream and and then asked them to interpret it for him. But as with his previous dream in chapter 2, none of the pagan wise men could tell him its meaning. And so you wonder why uh, he even called these guys this time around since they failed to interpret the first dream. You would think that he would have uh, bypassed them and just immediately called for Daniel. But he didn't, and they were unable to give the interpretation. And so we read now in verse 8, At last Daniel came in before me, who was named Belshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and I told him the dream. Now the phrase translated the spirit of the holy gods is actually better translated uh, as it is in the New King James. And there it's translated the spirit of the holy God. Nebuchadnezzar recognized that in Daniel was the spirit of the holy God. 
And it was clear that Daniel served a different God than the wise men because the gods of the Babylonians were certainly not holy. And no pagan worshipers claimed holiness for their gods. I mean, pagan gods are no better than the men who worship them. And so they certainly weren't holy. But the Holy Spirit indwelt Daniel, and Nebuchadnezzar came to know that that was true. How did he know? How did Nebuchadnezzar know that uh, the God that resided with Daniel was the holy God? Well, no doubt Daniel, who was the prime minister of Babylon, told Nebuchadnezzar uh, all he could about God. I mean, Daniel cared about him, and he certainly would have shared with him the truth of the living God. Secondly, Nebuchadnezzar would also have gained an understanding of what God was like by the exemplary life of Daniel. Daniel didn't defile himself with the king's food or wine. He didn't indulge in the immoralities of a pagan society. Daniel lived a pure and a virtuous life. The logical conclusion is that he obeyed a holy and virtuous God because a man's life will certainly reflect the God he worships. And Daniel was a true man of God. He not only spoke about God, but the character of God was also manifested in his life. And I wonder this morning if our lives reflect the God we worship. I wonder if we not only speak about God, but is His character actually manifested in our lives? Do the unbelievers around us uh, recognize God in our lives? Do they, do they see a difference in our lives, in our marriages, in our families that would lead them to believe that we love and serve a living God? God's presence in the life of Daniel was obvious to the pagan king. And because of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar had a fuller understanding of the nature of God than he ever had before. He knew Daniel had incredible knowledge and wisdom, and he possessed the spirit of the holy God, and so he knew that Daniel would be able to interpret his dream. Verse 9, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods or the spirit of the holy God is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. And in verses 10 to 12, the king tells Daniel the first part of his dream. This is the uh, good news part, which uh, didn't trouble him. And this is the way the dream began. Notice verses 10 through 12. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. And so the tree in Nebuchadnezzar's dream was noted for its size, its strength, prominence, beauty, fruit, and shelter, 
And this massive tree grew out of the midst of the earth, providing food and shelter for all. And now in verses 13 to 18, Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel the second part of his dream. And this is the part that greatly troubled him. He says in verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. A watcher and a holy one identifies the being as an angel. And these terms emphasize the angel's vigilance and and holiness. And this angel, we read in verse 14, proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with the band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast mind be given to him, and let seven periods or seven years of time pass over him. And so the watcher or the angel explained the fate of the tree, and he noted the tree was to be chopped down, its branches cut off, its fruit scattered, a metal band put around the stump to prohibit its growth. And the pronouns him and his indicate the tree represented a man who would be changed and given the mind of a beast. In other words, the man's mind would become like that of an animal and he would live in the open field among the beasts. And in verse 17 we read, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Evidently, there was more than one angel with the message that God sovereignly rules over men and their earthly kingdoms, and it is God who gives kingdoms to whomever he will, even the lowliest of men. And loved ones, with all that is going on in our country right now, we need to mark this verse and remember it. Whatever ends up happening, it is God who gives kingdoms to whomever He will, even the lowliest of men. Well, like most kings, ancient and modern, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to believe that he ruled instead of God, or anyone else for that matter. But not so, not ultimately. Because God alone is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. God alone controls human kingdoms, and and he may choose to give them to men of the lowest standing or position in society rather than proud leaders. Well, the king may not have understood the symbolism, but he certainly understood the words spoken by the angel clearly meant trouble for him. And the words struck fear into the heart of this proud, arrogant ruler. And he said in verse 18, notice, This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able. For the spirit of the holy gods, or the spirit of the holy God, is in you. 
mean, Nebuchadnezzar knew from past experience that God would enable Daniel to interpret the dream. And in verses 19 to 27, we have Daniel's interpretation and also an exhortation. Verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a time, and his thoughts alarmed him. So Daniel was dismayed. It means that he was greatly perplexed. He was uh, in a state of severe distress. The word alarmed means astounded. So Daniel's thoughts troubled him. He was perplexed. He was astounded, not because he didn't know the interpretation, but rather because of its serious implications for Nebuchadnezzar. There's no doubt in my mind that Daniel genuinely cared for the king. And so he was clearly affected by the meaning of the dream. And as he contemplated the dream and its interpretation, Daniel's dismay became obvious to the king. Perhaps the king noticed Daniel's facial expressions or his body language, and he knew from that that the interpretation Daniel had received from God was bad news. And the king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. So he encouraged Daniel not to be distressed by the meaning of the dream. Belshazzar answered, or Daniel answered and said, My Lord, May the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. So Daniel expressed his sincere concern for the king before he gave the interpretation. He, he wished the dream applied to the king's enemy, enemies and not to the king himself. And knowing Daniel's sincerity and his integrity, this probably proved to Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel was genuinely concerned for him. And no doubt Daniel had a heavy heart. Because what he was about to tell the king was devastating. And in verses 20 to 26, he reveals to Nebuchadnezzar the meaning of his dream. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived, it is you, O king. In other words, you're the man. This is about you, Nebuchadnezzar. It is you who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods, or seven years, shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Second time in this chapter that's said. Nebuchadnezzar would be greatly humiliated 
He was going to become insane and live and act like an animal for seven years. And imagine that. Verse 26, as, And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. That the tree stump was left indicated that Nebuchadnezzar was not going to die, and after seven years he would reclaim his throne. But only after he learned that every kingdom belongs to God, who is the ruler of everything. And that any man who rules a kingdom does so only because God has allowed him to. And so the basis for the king's restoration was his acknowledgement of the sovereignty of Almighty God who rules in heaven and who both raises up kings and puts them down. God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to learn that he alone is sovereign and he will not permit any man to usurp his throne or take credit for his works. And then Daniel had some counsel for Nebuchadnezzar in verse 27. Notice. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. I mean, Daniel's calling for repentance, isn't he? He wanted the king to change his mind, to acknowledge his sin, to turn from it, and to put his faith in the true and the living God, and then live a life that manifested his faith, a, a righteous life, a merciful life. I mean, the right reaction to the threat of judgment is always humble repentance. And so Daniel is standing before Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on the face of the earth at that time, confronting him with his sin and calling him to repentance. I mean, Daniel knew the king had a violent temper and that he was treading on dangerous ground by doing such a thing. Yet the faithful prophet, the faithful pastor must proclaim God's word and leave the consequences to the Lord. In chapter 2, after Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar his dream and its interpretation, the king honored and promoted Daniel. Here, there's no expression of appreciation from the king. There's no promotion or advancement for Daniel. And from the silence of the text, it seems the king politely thanked Daniel at best, choosing not to take Daniel's interpretation seriously. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar knew enough about Daniel's God to know what Daniel spoke was the truth. Unfortunately, Nebuchadnezzar did nothing about it. The dream itself seems to have had uh, no great impact on the king's attitude or his actions. And so in spite of the dream and its interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar refused to repent. And of course, he made the wrong decision. He passed up a gracious opportunity to make a new beginning by turning from sin and submitting to the will of God. And he responded to Daniel's admonition, much like Felix, the Roman governor of Judea, responded to the apostle Paul. You remember there in Acts 24, Paul was reasoning before Felix about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And Felix was alarmed and said, go away for now. 
When I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. Nebuchadnezzar put off dealing with the issue. If he had repented, perhaps God would not have judged him. You remember God said that he was going to destroy Nineveh, but Nineveh repented, and God did not destroy it. But that's not the case with Nebuchadnezzar. Notice verse 28. All this, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. It all happened just as Daniel warned. It it came to pass. But of course it did. God's word never fails to fulfill its purposes. God's word is always true. And we see now the details. Verse 29. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. So 12 months have gone by. I mean, God is a patient, long-suffering, merciful, and gracious God. And he demonstrated his patience in giving Nebuchadnezzar an entire year to respond to Daniel's appeal to repent. But the king had little regard for the kindness and the patience of God that should have led him to repentance, and he refused to yield. And his heart was so gripped by pride that he was not going to repent and submit to God. An entire year went by and nothing happened. And during that time, Nebuchadnezzar perhaps was able to forget about the dream, or maybe if not completely, but to to put it out of his mind. And and perhaps uh, he had convinced himself that no, even though Daniel was absolutely correct in the first dream, he's wrong on this one. I don't think anything's going to happen. I mean, it's been 12 months after all. Well, the king may have forgotten, but God certainly did not. And 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of his palace, enjoying the fruits of his power and prosperity, as he looked out over the city of Babylon, his immense ego and pride manifested itself as he boasted about his Babylon, the largest and most powerful city of the ancient world, all as a result of his greatness. I mean, look at verse 30. The king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? In other words, look what I have done by my mighty power and for the glory of of who? My majesty, he said. You know, I've done this. I've done this for my glory, he says. He, he took the glory for himself, and he didn't give the glory to God. Pride caused Nebuchadnezzar to forget or just to completely ignore what God had said through Daniel. And it caused him to exalt himself above God. Pride does that. Pride does that. It causes us to forget about God and to exalt ourselves. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 10 to 18, through Moses, God warned the children of Israel about this very sin. The Lord was bringing them into the land of plenty, and he said to them, You shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. 
Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this well. That's the danger of pride and prosperity. We forget the God who has blessed us. And we begin to think that we have done it on our own, by our own strength and and power and, and ingenuity. I mean, how often do we begin to think that, that we're responsible for what we've done and have achieved? It's like, man, look what I've done. Look look at all that I've made. I mean, how often do we fail to recognize the fact that all our achievements, great or small, are because God, the giver of all good gifts, has given us the ability to accomplish them. And he can just as easily take them all away. God said there in Deuteronomy 8.18, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. I mean, as Paul said to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 4.7, You know, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not? Receive it. So with all the foolishness which human beings are capable of, Nebuchadnezzar said, Is this not great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of, of my majesty? And that verse is the expression of Nebuchadnezzar's heart and of our hearts apart from the grace of God. As he overlooked the city of Babylon with a heart full of pride, Nebuchadnezzar basically said, aren't I great? I've done this by my power, for the glory of my majesty. You know, look what I have done. But God's reply was, this sin I will not tolerate. This sin, this pride, I will not tolerate. And he brought the king down. The greatest sin of all is that we take glory to ourselves instead of giving all the credit and the glory to God. And this is not just Nebuchadnezzar's sin. It's our sin. It's ours individually and ours collectively as a nation. 
When we do well, we, we think it's our achievement. When we do badly, we think it's someone else's fault. Right? And this is the perspective of fallen, sinful humanity. And we do it individually. And we do it as a nation as well. I love this country. And I'm so very thankful that God in his mercy and grace allowed me to be born here. You know, as Robert Treat Payne, a military chaplain, signer of the Declaration of Independence, Attorney General of Massachusetts and judge said, I desire to bless and praise the name of God Most High for appointing me my birth in a land of gospel light where the glorious tidings of a Savior and of pardon and salvation through him have been continually sounding in mine ears. I mean, what a blessing to be born in a nation like ours with such a rich, rich spiritual heritage. And when the Puritans landed here seeking religious freedom, they claimed this land in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You go to Washington, D.C. today, uh, walk into the courtroom at the Supreme Court, the, the Ten Commandments are carved in those great massive doors, the, the tablets. All around Washington are references to God. I mean, our founding documents are based on biblical principles. We have a rich spiritual heritage. Patrick Henry, ratifier of the U.S. Constitution, said, It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians, not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for this very reason, peoples of other faiths have been afforded asylum, prosperity, and freedom of worship here. I mean, we have been blessed by God in so many ways. As a nation, we have been blessed abundantly. I mean, we've been blessed materially, financially, culturally, and we have been greatly blessed spiritually. I mean, blessed beyond imagination. And because of God's great blessing, because of His rich mercy and grace toward us, the United States of America has known real greatness. But our nation has fallen from the greatness it once knew. Because we have forgotten and turned our back on God who made us great. And not only that, our leaders are trying to remove every last Vestige of God and His Word from the public square. John Jay, President of Congress, diplomat, author of the Federalist Papers, the original Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court and Governor of New York said this, I recommend a general and public return of praise and thanksgiving to Him from whom, whose goodness these blessings descend. The most effectual means of securing the continuance of our civil and religious liberties is always to remember with reverence and gratitude the source from which they flow. But now, instead of remembering with reverence and gratitude the source from which all of our blessings flow, now, instead of acknowledging, thanking, and giving glory to God, we boast of, of our achievements. We boast of our greatness, of our exceptionalism, assuming that it's all because of the kind of people that we are. You know, we did this, you know. 
It's all because of who we are and, and what we've done. Aren't we great? Look what we by our own strength have done. And we have forgotten the God who has blessed this nation again and again and again and again. The God by whose mercy and grace, by whose kindness and goodness we became a great nation. John Witherspoon, signer of the Declaration of Independence, he was a, a minister, also president of Princeton University, said this. While we give praise to God, the supreme disposer of all events, for his interposition on our behalf, let us guard against the dangerous error of trusting in or boasting of an arm of the flesh. In other words, we better be giving all thanks and glory and honor to God and guard against the dangerous error of boasting in the fact that we did it on our own. But that is exactly what we as a nation have done. And God hates pride. And he will not tolerate it in either individuals or nations. The history of humanity is, number one, the rising up of a nation by the blessing of God. Number two, men and women forgetting the blessing of God, taking the glory for themselves. And number three, God tearing them down in order to show that he is the most high God and not mankind. And loved ones, this will happen to the United States of America. And it's already happening to some degree. Because we have for many years now been under God's judgment of abandonment as God removes his restraining hand and just gives us over to our sins. And if we do not repent, if on a national scale we do not humble ourselves before Almighty God and repent of our high-handed sins against him, we will surely be torn down and humbled. Jedediah Morris, another minister in the early days of our nation who studied under Jonathan Edwards, said this, To the kindly influence of Christianity, we owe that degree of civil freedom and political and social happiness which mankind now enjoys. And then he said, Whenever the pillars of Christianity shall be overthrown, our present republican forms of government and all blessings which flow from them must fall with them, and fall they surely will. With a heart full of pride, Nebuchadnezzar said, look what I have done. Look what I have done by my power and for the glory of my majesty. But notice verses 31 and 32. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven O Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Third time that's been said in this chapter. Nebuchadnezzar refused to acknowledge that heaven rules, and so as he spoke, while the words were still on his lips, 
a voice came from heaven announcing his humiliation in the same words that he heard in his dream. And this indicated to him that this dream was about to be fulfilled, that he was going to be reduced to the existence of an animal, specifically an ox. And this would continue for seven periods or seven years until the time, we're told, when the king would recognize and acknowledge the sovereignty of God over men and kings and kingdoms. And then his sanity would return. We read in verse 33, Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. So it happened immediately. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Well, that's an incredible picture, isn't it? Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, the most powerful king on the face of the earth at that time, became a raving maniac. And for seven years, he was outside where everyone could see him, crawling around like an animal eating grass. I mean, his dirty, matted hair resembled the feathers of an eagle, and then his nails, the claws of a bird. You know, Nebuchadnezzar was given the opportunity to humble himself and to repent, but he refused. As Proverbs 11.2 says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But the rest of the verse says, but with the humble is wisdom. In Isaiah 66.2, the Lord said, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You know, Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. How much better off Nebuchadnezzar would have been if he had humbled himself before God. Instead, God humbled him to a degree that he never could have even imagined. And with the king in such a condition, you can be sure that there were those who wanted to seize Nebuchadnezzar's throne. I mean, normally a king who lost his mind also lost his kingdom. (laughs) Rivals within or without his own family would seize power immediately in in some kind of palace coup. But God never allowed anyone to lay a hand on the throne because he had promised Nebuchadnezzar that he would return from the fields and his kingdom would be restored to him. And in this, God demonstrated that he alone truly is the sovereign ruler of the universe and that every kingdom belongs to him, that he rules and reigns over men and their earthly kingdoms and gives those kingdoms to whomever he will. And so for seven years, while he was a raving maniac, no one was allowed to seize Nebuchadnezzar's throne. Perhaps God used Daniel to secure and control the kingdom until uh, such a time It would be given back to the king. We don't know. In verses 34 to 37, we have Nebuchadnezzar's restoration and praise. Notice verse 34. At the end of the days, so at the end of the seven years, after seven years of living like an animal, literally, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. 
And at the end of the appointed time, the king did the only thing that he in his beastly state could do. He, he lifted his eyes to heaven. And this was his way of acknowledging that God in heaven is sovereign and, and that he reigns over the affairs of men and of nations. And when Nebuchadnezzar did this, his reason, his sanity returned, and then with his whole heart and mind, he worshipped the Most High God, acknowledging in every possible way the infinite superiority and supremacy of God. Look at the rest of verse 34. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation. So Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged that unlike mortal men, God lives forever. You know, His dominion, that is His power, His authority, His sovereign rule and reign is everlasting. And unlike the passing kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, God's glorious kingdom endures from generation to generation. In other words, it, it endures forever. He continues in verse 35, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he, God, does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged that before God, all the inhabitants of the earth are, are accounted as nothing. That God does according to His will in heaven and on earth, and, and no one, absolutely no one, can restrain His hand or, or say to Him, what have you done? In other words, because God is sovereign, He does as He pleases. And no one can hinder Him or Call him to account. You know, in Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul likens God to a potter and us to clay in the potter's hands. And this speaks of the absolute sovereign power of the potter over the clay to make of it whatever kind of vessel he wishes. And Paul said there in that passage, the clay does not have any right to say to the potter, why are you making me like this? God does whatever He wants in our lives. And it's by the, the mercies of God that we're not consumed. But you see, the heart of sinful man rebels at the very idea of a sovereign God. Because the human heart wants to be free from all outside control. You know, sinners think they're free. And they don't realize they're in bondage to their fallen sinful nature and to the forces of Satan and the world. Spurgeon said, Most men quarrel with the sovereignty of God. But Mark, the thing that they complain of in God is the very thing that they love in themselves. Every man likes to feel that he has a right to do with his own as he pleases. We all like to be little sovereigns. Oh, he said, for a spirit that bows before the sovereignty of God. Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged the sovereignty of God, which is the primary lesson God wanted him to learn through all of this. And submitting to God's sovereignty didn't make Nebuchadnezzar any less of a man. In fact, this commitment transformed him from living like a beast to living like a man. I mean, literally. 
And when God restored Nebuchadnezzar, he restored him completely. Look at verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And then notice this, and still more greatness was added to me. The king had learned his lesson. It was a bitter lesson. He learned it the hard way, (laughs) for sure. But he learned it, and that's what was vital. Nebuchadnezzar was brought to the place where he acknowledged God's sovereignty over his life, and he submitted himself to God. And with that recognition, there was a restoration of the kingdom, of the place of power and honor and prominence that he had once experienced. In fact, God gave him even more. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar became even greater than before. You see, that's nothing but the grace and and the mercy and the goodness of God. I mean, where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. And then, instead of boasting in his own accomplishments, we read now in verse 37, notice, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble And his final words are those of testimony and worship. These final words are addressed to the King of Heaven, praising Him for His works, His ways, and and His justice in the lives of mortal men. When King Nebuchadnezzar finally got the message, and I think we'll probably see him in heaven. I mean, I don't know, but uh, eternity will tell. And the lesson here is plain. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know, the Bible tells us that pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Nebuchadnezzar was successful and rose to power by the grace of God, not due to his own merit. And so when he became proud and, and took credit for what God had done, God humbled him greatly. Humiliation was God's means of making him a humble and a grateful worshiper. As a nation, we had better wake up. We had better wake up. We have become proud. We have forgotten God. We have taken the credit and the glory for ourselves. Not only that, we have thumbed our nose at him. We sinned against him in a high-handed way. We have called good what he calls evil. We have called evil what he calls good. We continue in the, in the most and, and flaunt and promote the most uh, perverse forms of immorality. We continue to slaughter, to murder the unborn. And then politicians have the nerve to get up and say, God bless America. 
as a nation, we had better wake up. We had better wake up. Abraham Lincoln said, It is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. But, he said, we have forgotten God. And this was way back then. We have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud, he said, to pray to the God that made us. We'd better wake up. And we as believers need to be on our knees interceding for our nation, interceding for the church and for our nation. And we must do what founding father Josiah Bartlett military officer, signer of the Declaration of Independence, judge and governor of New Hampshire did. He called on the people of New Hampshire to confess before God their aggravated transgressions and to implore his pardon and forgiveness through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, that the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ may be known to all nations, pure and undefiled religion universally prevail, and the earth be filled with the glory of the Lord. Would to God we would hear politicians today say that. I mean, God always has a remnant, always. And that faithful remnant will survive. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But if our nation continues on its current course, and we do not humble ourselves before Almighty God and repent of our sins, we will surely be torn down and humbled. And judgment will begin in the house of God. That's what Peter said in 1 Peter 4.17. That doesn't mean condemnation. Because for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Judgment will begin in the house of God in the church in the sense that there will be a purging, a chastening, and, and a purifying of the church by the loving hand of God. And, as Peter said in the rest of that verse, if it begins with us, What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Loved ones, we need to pray. You know, if my people, what's the verse? Everybody loves to quote it, but nobody does it. If my people who are called by my name will what? Humble themselves and pray. Turn from their wicked ways. That's his people. We need to pray. 
You know, God in, in times past has brought revival on a large scale in our nation. And as a result of the reviving of his people, and that spilled out into the communities and, and large numbers of people were brought into the kingdom. And that's the only hope for our nation. That's the only hope, ultimately, in the long, in the long run. Because only hearts transformed by the power of the gospel, uh, that's the only thing that's going to make a difference. After seven years of humiliation, Nebuchadnezzar bowed before God and worshipped him, and, and he will continue to worship him throughout all eternity. I believe that. And what Nebuchadnezzar did many years ago, every man and woman will do at some point. Because one day everyone will humble themselves before God, acknowledging his sovereignty and acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some will do so in this life by trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Others will do so after death. All those who rejected Christ's gracious offer of salvation in this life, they won't be given a, uh, another chance to trust him as, save, as Savior in eternity. But they will be required to bow the knee before him and to acknowledge that he is Lord. I mean, as Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 9-11, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so I want to ask you the most important question you will ever answer. You know, what have you done with Jesus Christ? What have you done with Christ? Have you trusted in him alone as Savior and Lord? And I'm not asking if you believe in him intellectually. I mean, years before the events of, of Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar had recognized the wisdom and the power of the God of Israel. But he certainly had not placed his faith and trust in him. So he knew about God but he didn't know God. And I'm not asking you this morning if you know about God. I'm asking if you know him personally. If you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ because you have trusted in him alone for salvation. I mean, your response to the Lord Jesus Christ is the most, the most important issue in all of life. Nothing else really matters in light of eternity. And so this morning, if you've never trusted in Christ alone, I'm, I'm urging you, I'm inviting you to put your faith and trust in Christ today. And myself and, and the elders will be around following the service if you'd like to talk to uh, any of us about what it means to trust in Christ for salvation. Let's stand up. It's your word that comforts me 
On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Growing.